Buenas. 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 Welcome back to Film Posers for Boricuas ranting, raving, and reviewing cinema. Today we'll be doing an extra special episode to finish off spooky season, and it will be moderated by Juan Mojica, so I'll let him tell you what our episode is about. Welcome everyone to the Scream Cinematic Universe Breakdown. To those listening, I ask, what's your favorite scary movie? This is the one episode that I have been dying, metaphorically, to create. Scream is not only my favorite horror movie of all time, but also the first horror film I ever watched. And the series itself is perhaps my favorite film series of all time. It's also a yearly tradition for me to rewatch these films during Halloween. So today I will be discussing the first four films in the series. This will be a spoiler-filled episode. So if you haven't seen any of these films, please rent them or watch them on their respective online platforms. There's also a Scream MTV show, which is on Netflix right now. And in this household, you only remember the first two seasons. I'd like to begin by asking the posers for their overall first reactions, starting with our horror connoisseur, Anna. So, I feel, for me, this, is, this was like a first rewatch, well, a first watch, because I watched it years ago and I didn't remember practically like nothing about the film so I binge watched it throughout the week and I can say that I enjoyed it I especially I could appreciate the things that Wes Craven said about horror cinema which I didn't understood before but now I do I can say that my favorite one is the first one the first one is always gonna be iconic but Throughout the whole franchise, I feel that it kept repeating the same thing all over again. But I could find a certain appreciation to it because there are some topics about horror film and horror cinema that weren't touched in the first movie, but in the second and the third and even the fourth, he did. So I really like that. And I think that this episode is going to be very interesting. <laughs> Look for for our very interesting discussion, and yeah. So I never seen Scream, ever, and so I watched them last week, and I did enjoy them, especially the first one was my favorite one. Yeah, but the only thing is that they're too predictable. They're way too predictable, and you know, I I kind of wanted to be surprised. And I just, I wasn't. I could look, I looked at the characters as soon as they introduced it. I was like, this one. It was just, it was too predictable for me. And it mostly because they tend, tended to cast the same type of person to be the killer. Because if you think about it, every single character that was the killer. The, physically, they, they were very similar. But also they shared the same characteristics. So it was kind of. You know, it had this formula that they followed to the T, that they didn't try to surprise the audience, which I wish they could have done that more. Maybe, perhaps, I would have liked, because it's not that I didn't like them. I did, but I just wanted to be more surprised by them. Even though there were some scenes that I did love, and I laughed at how 
you know, they made fun of horror movies and all of that, especially in the first movie where Randy is discussing the rules of horror as the killings are happening around them. I think that's my favorite scene. And obviously in the second one, when Jada Pinkett Smith is making fun of the stab movies, because that is me. They're fun to watch. And I do recommend that if you're into that type of movie, it's a fun watch. It's a good time. Like you'll, you'll have a good time. Even if they're predictable, you have a good time because you like, because the reveals are always <laughs> kind of Definitely. extra. So the reveals are always fun. I, I remember knowing, okay, how are they going to reveal that he did it? And it was I just think like the a most whole extra curtain reveal thing. Was and the third one. That was funny. <laughs> You can tell why these films, specifically the first two, became cult classics. They have inspired countless others, and there's a reason why. My favorite was the first one. However, they're not really for me. Mostly, I think it's for a very specific viewer. They're very meta, and they're very niche, and there is something to appreciate from them. The style of the films, they reminded me of a film I watched back in 2009, My Super Psycho Sweet 16, which was inspired by the MTV original series, My Super Sweet 16. Oh my god, I remember that. Yeah. So there is something to enjoy from them, and I think anyone can find something that they will like from them. However, again, not really for me, but I am excited for Scream 5. We'll see if there's time to discuss Scream 5 at the end. So, now that we have the first reactions out, Let's start with a bit of background information. For those of you who don't know, the first four Scream films were directed by the dearly missed horror master, Wes Craven. Scream originally came out on December 20th, 1996 in theaters, so by default, this also counts for me as a Christmas movie. The film opened in fourth place with around (laughs) six million-ish, and normally we tend to see films recently at the box office very front-loaded, and then they begin to decrease week after week. That wasn't the case for Scream. Thanks to positive word of mouth and during the following weeks, the earnings began to increase and increase and ended up making $173 million worldwide, a number they weren't even counting on. And from there, a franchise was born. So if you've never heard of Scream, I'm shocked. However, this film is about a killer known as Ghostface who begins killing off teenagers. And as the body count begins to rise, one girl and her friends find themselves contemplating the rules of horror films as they find themselves living in a real-life one. So, Scream is praised for standing the test of time, and you can take our, my word for it. It gets better with every viewing. It is praised as one of the top slasher films of all time, and is known for revamping the horror subgenre, and uses metafiction, as Josie said, to call attention to the typical cliches and tropes of what was the standard slasher film. Slasher films at one point were basically converting their killers from Predators to these superhuman beings that could survive all of these attacks. Take, for example, Michael Myers up to the second Halloween film. You have Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th. That guy's just a supernatural killer. Freddy Krueger, etc. Ghostface was a refreshing take because this killer wasn't a supernatural being that couldn't be killed. It's someone wearing a mask and a costume that in that town was easy to find in one of those costume shops. Going around wielding a knife and killing people which is both an ode to Michael Myers in terms of the creation of the killer. But then it's also a mystery because you're trying to figure out who it is. Now, granted, watching this for the first time now, you see the reveal and you think, hasn't this been done before? And you'd be right, but you're basically watching the blueprint to how that started. Other films released after Scream basically wanted what they created. It's a film that has so much fun with the plot that it feels refreshing with each viewing. 
Plus, this film probably has the best pacing I've seen in a movie for me. Because every time I watch it, it doesn't feel like two hours. It flies by so quickly. It feels like 90 minutes even. And you have such a great time enjoying it. You're like, this is two hours? I was, this is great for me. So, before we start breaking it down, a quick fun fact here. Scream was Nev Campbell's first leading role in a movie. And in that same year, The Craft came out, which he co-starred in. And so did Skeet Ulrich, a.k.a. Billy Loomis. And if you only know him from Riverdale, you haven't seen Scream, fix that. So, let's start with the opening scene. Now, this is probably the most iconic openings for a film of all time. It sets the bar extremely high for horror films. In my opinion, Drew Barrymore carries this, film, this scene so well that it's more impactful than Tarantino's whole filmography. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Plus, it's the birth of one of the most iconic serial killer lines, what's your favorite scary movie? And here, Drew Barrymore was originally cast in the role of Sidney Prescott, but she decided she wanted the role of Casey instead. The reason behind it was that if she were to be murdered in that film, in that time she had a bigger name than some of the other cast members, it would give the audience the impression that anything can happen since she was a famous actress and she was one of the first ones to go and they expected her to star in it. What were our thoughts on the opening scene? Ah. Now that you told me about that fun fact I didn't know about Drew Mary Warren, like saying, like, I don't want that the main role anymore. It was a smart choice that she did that. She chose to be killed first because anything could happen. And also, it screenplays with the archetypes of blonde girls being the first to kill. And we see Bruce, the Drew Barrymore being a blonde and she gets killed. And that's something that usually happens a lot in horror films. Throughout the whole film, then we see Sydney Prescott, which she defies what's supposed to be a final girl because she's not blonde. She is smart. And she also has sex because if you guys don't know, like before Scream, when you had when you had sex means that you're dead. You're a dead girl. But Sydney Prescott changed the archetype of final girls in horror film. Going back to the first scene, it's I feel that it was this is not gonna be it. This is not the film. This is what you want and you already saw, but we're not gonna get this. So it's a whole different level. And yeah, it is an iconic scene. Everybody, when they think about Scream, they think about that first scene and what's your scary movie. And honestly, it's very iconic. Yeah. That's, and also, it's my favorite movie of all the Scream movies. Well, my initial reaction to the opening scene is, don't these people lock their doors? Like, you're telling me that this girl locked her doors after she realized that there was someone watching her. You go inside your house and you lock the doors. That is a rule. Like, how can, how can you be in your home chilling knowing that your doors are unlocked? Maybe it was because yeah. it was the 90s. They didn't expect it. Apparently that's something. I mean, cool. it happens still to these days. I, yeah. I, 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 Especially mostly because they did say that they live far away when she says she should call the police and he says... Oh, they'll never make it in time. Sometimes people are in remote areas, which I think you should fear security, but sometimes people feel comfortable. But that was one of my notes, too. Like, lock your doors. Lock your doors. Anyway, other than that, 
it was scary, honestly. It was very scary, you know, like the phone ringing someone, you know, you realizing that you are not safe in your own home. That's really scary. And honestly, the part that got to me the most is how her parents arrived and she was still alive, but she couldn't scream because he had crushed her windpipe. That was, that got to me. That was really scary. But uh, yeah, I do agree that it's a very iconic scene and a really good way to open the movie and, you know, kind of set up the vibe to what this film is going to be. I did really like the opening scene. And I did not know that, that Juvermer turned down the role of Sydney. So that that kind of feels like Game of Thrones in the first season when they killed off Eddard because they could, <laughs> even though he was on the poster. When it came to... This was just a random note that I wrote down that Steve is the most basic name ever. That he could have said anything and she would have said yes. <laughs> like, is your boyfriend Trevor? And she would have been like, how do you know? <laughs> but yeah, the popcorn stressed me out. It was just such a stressful scene, which I mean, that means that it was done well. And yeah. it definitely sets a tone yeah. for the film. And if you don't like it, you can just walk out. Like, you immediately, it's like, it reminds me of La La Land when the director said, we're going to do a big musical number at the beginning of the film so people know this is a musical with a capital M. So if you want to leave, just leave because it's not going to get any easier. (laughs) So it definitely feels like that kind of scene. Also, fun fact, I did not expect them to be so gory. Mm -hmm. They are pretty gory. I was under the impression that obviously that there was going to be blood, obviously, but you know, we see her gutted and her intestines yeah, fall, and I was like, am I watching that's, The Walking that's Dead? That's right why now. they were so criticized. That's something that we don't watch no, I don't mind. in the other films. <laughs> like, that was the most goriest one out of all. Yeah, which I'm sure we'll get to it later, but they did yeah. that for a reason, yeah. especially the third one with comedy. But, yeah, again, it sets the tone. All right, so we're going to move on to the concept of Ghostface. This is a really quick segment. So, you know Michael Myers isn't real. But the, again, the genius behind Ghostface, it could literally be anybody. And in this case, they decided to focus on, in the first one, the high school setting. So it could have been any high schooler who just snaps. And there's a whole list of possibilities from a student's perspective, which is what makes this killer so believable and scary. Because you have no idea who this could be. You can't even trust your friend group because... You're not sure if they're being honest with you or if they're setting you up to be the next victim. Also with Ghostface, he's the horror's genre's clumsiest yet somehow effective killer. Every time he trips, I'm here going, are you okay? Do you need new shoes? Yeah, he was so clumsy and he's so messy. I just just feel that Wes Craven wanted to play with the archetype of, you know, most of the serial killers and horror films they have a mask and the most well-known ones that are you know Leatherface or Friday 13 they both wear masks so I think he just wanted to hint on that type of horror yeah but, but he was so messy like Hannibal Lecter is shaking I know he's elegant because Hannibal Lecter <laughs> when he kills he's so elegant he like wears his rubber suit he doesn't yeah, get a drop of blood anywhere. That, um, and then movies, Ghostface is just making a mess. <laughs> Gabriela and the posers do not condone any type of murder or, act or, or any of degree of murder in this household. Moving on, we're going to talk about 
The horror movie movie and the party (laughs) being the final act bloodbath. Final act of this first movie. They're at the party. It's a huge group gathering. The curfew's been installed after the recent murders and the recent terror, the recent attacks. So, biological horror movie standards, they say, let's have a party to celebrate this. Obviously. Again, making fun of the tropes itself. And in this party, you know, imagine being at a party in the 90s where you drank alcohol with a group of people, got rentals from a video store, in this case, scary movies. I don't know about anyone listening, but that's the kind of party post-pandemic that's probably worth going to. And now, the horror movie rules itself. This scene at the party, Randy explains the importance of knowing the horror movie rules. He informs the it informs, but it also helps the audience connect with the movie, especially if you're watching this for the first time. One of the, the first rule: you may not survive the movie if you have sex. Second one: you can't survive the movie if you drink or do drugs. And the third one: never, under any circumstance, say "I'll be right back" because you won't be back. Followed by Matthew Lillard saying, "You want me to go get you a beer? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back." Yeah, I think I, I really love that, that dude was living it, it out up. so well. Him explaining <laughs> the rules of horror, but meanwhile yeah. we have the characters breaking yeah. the rules, and one of them does yep. get in fact killed, but the other one. I, I really mm-hmm. love that scene too. It's very funny. They're gonna, it's a perfect mix of comedy and suspense because obviously you know that the killer is right there, mm-hmm. and you're just waiting for him to, you know, wreak havoc. And meanwhile, Randy's there just screaming at Halloween, yeah. which who doesn't scream at Halloween? I also love how Halloween, Randy but, is the character you know. that knows it all. Like, we should hear him more. If Randy would have yeah. been alive today, we would have asked him to drop his <laughs> letterbox account. <laughs> he was spitting some good facts and some cinema. Okay. Also, again, props oh, here to Matthew Lillard. I feel he doesn't get enough appreciation for this role because it's that iconic. He looks like he had the most fun out of everyone playing his role. Also, can we appreciate? Fun fact about that scene: I really liked how there was a moment where the camera focuses on Randy watching Halloween, and we c- clearly see Jamie Lee Curtis on the mm-hmm. screen. You know that she's the final girl in in Halloween, and then Neve yes. Campbell is the final girl of Scream. Like I really liked how we had two final. And they girls did recently really an interview on that. Variety, which I checked out. Worth your time. It's so good. They talk about everything slasher films. Also, yeah. a funny thing Wes Craven did, the ra- actor who did Randy's role is Jamie Kennedy. So when he was yelling at the screen, Jamie, behind you, behind you, I'm, keeping, I'm here thinking, is that the scriptwriters yelling at you or are you just drunk yelling at the movie? <laughs> yeah, also, just a quick fact, because of mentioning Halloween, that Scream 1 was the highest grossing slasher yeah, film until Halloween 2018. Wow. Didn't know that. I mean, if Scream 5 doesn't make that much money, Juan will personally go watch that movie every single day at the theater until it recoups the money and makes more. Final topic for the first film, The Final Girl. The casting of Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott is just an example of perfect casting. She was a perfect find. She not only embodies what it means to be the final girl, clever, witty, vulnerable, fights back, but she also has this charisma and badassery to not only carry one horror film, but a whole franchise. And when you think of legendary final girls, you think of Sidney Prescott and Laurie Strode within this slasher genre. I feel Nev Campbell is the standard, while Jamie Lee Curtis remains the ultimate scream queen. Yeah, because I feel that um, to write a final girl, the character has to be interesting, compelling, 
and a well-fleshed character that the audience could sympathize mm-hmm. or cheat on her. However, if the character is two-dimensional, it lacks depth, which is something that Sydney does not lack. So, to write a final girl character, it has to be interesting, compelling, and well-fleshed character that the audience could sympathize and cheer on. However, if the writers do a two-dimensional character, they lack depth and are partially developed, the film itself becomes dead and amusing, and that's something that does not happen with Scream, because Sydney is a fully well-fleshed character that the audience could sympathize. And it's one character that beats the final girl odds, in a sense, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to compare her right now with Laurie Strode, but in the first movie, mm-hmm. one of the archetypes for a final girl is a damsel in distress. And we see Laurie Strode fighting in Halloween. And, but at the end of the day, she's saved by a man called Sam Loomis. But here in this film, she actually saves herself. So it's a refreshing thing to see that when a final girl saves herself rather than being saved by somebody else. And that's why it's such a progressive um, film in the slasher genre. Yeah, but not only that, also the one who gets like the final shot you know the one who finally kills billy is actually gail so she's actually saved by a woman rather than a man you know because you'd be thinking that dewey would be the one to save the day but it was gail yeah but at the end we see her shooting the killer and with the iconic um line not in my movie yeah so i feel in a sense she also saves herself no, yeah, I, I do think so. It was kind of what she needed to do because, you know, you also find out that he was the one who killed her mother. So it was kind of also a revenge story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which contributes to how messy he is because it's a crime of passion. He's so messy, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, we're moving on to Scream 2. Now, Screen 2 came out in 1997, a year after the first one's successful release, also released in December. Now, Screen 2 takes place two years after the terrifying events that occurred in Woodsboro. Sydney Prescott is attending Windsor College in Cincinnati, and Gail Weathers' best-selling book on Sydney's life has now made it into a major motion picture. When the two college students are killed in a theater while watching the premiere of the new film, Stab, Sydney knows deep down that history is about to repeat itself. Essentially, this is Scream Goes to College, which, when you think about it, it's a perfect location for Ghostface because it adds more depth, more intensity of who could be the killer this time around, and it continues the whodunit mystery formula from Scream 1 in a fun way. So we're going to start by discussing another amazing opening scene, this time featuring Jada Pinkett Smith, who uses her screen time to have her, ama- her character criticize the lack of diversity in slasher films. When it comes to the main cast with the line, this is about a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white kids getting their white asses cut the fuck up. And when she kept saying, why does she have to be naked in the movie? It makes no sense. I was just like, that is me every time. 
Yeah, I felt that. Every single thing she was complaining, I felt it in my soul. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate from the second one is that they put all their knowledge in the like horror tropes in the second one, such as this first scene where she's like, oh, but why is it POC or minorities always get killed first? And it's something relevant to this day. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah, and I like it how Chris Craven was like, you know what? Let's spill the facts here. But then still kill the (laughs) but then still kill the POC. (laughs) Well, one survives, one survives the cameraman. But I will say I think Jada Pinkett Smith has not as iconic as Drew Barrymore, but it is definitely up there. Because like Gabriela has mentioned, she you connect right away with her character. You yeah. definitely feel like that's you watching a horror film. And we also got to remember it is a parody. So yeah. he's criticizing about the lack of POC in horror. And- because it's like even they, the fact that this is a parody and even they can't save themselves from it. I think that's what Wes Craven was going for. Yeah, and it still ends up fitting its purpose because what we end up finding out in screen two is that the killer's remaking the events of Woodsboro at the college by mm-hmm. killing Phil Stevens, the boyfriend, as in Stephen Orsk from the first film, and Maureen mm-hmm. Evans, as in Maureen Prescott. Yeah. They're using, like, the similar names. Similar mm-hmm. names to commit the order. Next up, the film class scene, which is what I call what a debate on film Twitter looks like in real life. <laughs> Oh, I love you're, that scene. Though. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Is, though. I love how, again, weird. it goes back with parody because there's this, this um, fight where they say sequel sucks and they are the inferior films from the first one. And that is they, true. It is true. Well, sometimes. Every time. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes so- the sequel is better. But it's only the stop. second one. <laughs> yeah, when they get to the third one, you need to stop. Mm-hmm. Like you need to cap. If you make a good sequel, as in the second movie, cap it at two. Because like, you're not gonna get any better than that, unless you're John Wick. But yeah, you know, which is which is something Justin Simeon did in Dear White People season three, where the characters criticize how the third season of a TV show is whack, and it's the third season of the show. <laughs> So I definitely like when that's done in a film or in a TV show. And it's also how they did it in X-Men Apocalypse. You know, it's it's bad, but it also makes fun of X-Men The Last Stand. Yeah. Which is hilarious because you're making fun of X-Men The Last Stand, but you yourself are, are also an inferior X-Men movie. That's just like a paradox right there. All right. So moving on. Fun fact. There is a cameo of the person who is on the phone with C.C. Cooper, Sarah Michelle Gellar. That person is Selma Blair. Yes, Gabriela. Selma Blair is on the phone with Sarah Michelle Gellar in that scene. And what movie did they star in together two years later? Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. (laughs) Connecting cinematic dots here at Film Posers. Can I just say that I really loved how Randy again starts <laughs> take a shot every I time love Anna it. says okay. Randy I love it. so he just goes back and sits down and says this is the rules of a sequel guys <laughs> he, he does um, speaking of the sequel rules he does mention that the body count is always bigger 
the death scenes are more elaborate, bloodier, and filled with more gore. And to remember from the first film that the killer will always come back for one final scare. Mm-hmm. Yes. Fun yeah. fact, this was actually shown in the trailer, but they had to edit some of it out. The rules, because it alluded too much to what was going to happen. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Too. Yeah. But I then, mean, on, honestly, like the second one is the, like, it's not as good as the first one, obviously. But it was the one that did surprise me the most out of all the four. Because even though it was predictable, the, it did manage to surprise me in two aspects. Should I say them now or? Later. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, they killed Randy. I, I thought he would last at least until the third one or, you Same. know. But they just straight up killed him right there. And I was like, damn. Like, they just killed Randy. Damn. compelling <laughs> character out of the whole franchise. And you Anna is boy. more hurt than I was. I, I was so I was, hurt. Anna is still hurt. I was just like, damn, they really did that. They actually killed Randy. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was that and also how, you know, obvious, because the killer is revealed to be Timothy Oliphant's character. Which, if you've seen Timothy Oliphant, you know he has evil face. So, come on. How can he not be? He has the evil face. Yes, Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student. Yeah. Yes. And, oh, but you know about the killer. Oh. Yeah, no, no. Obviously, like him. Obviously, that was pretty obvious. But then they revealed that it was Laurie Metcalf. Who turned out to be Billy's mother, who was, you know, there was two of them. And my first reaction was that this woman has been playing way too many psycho roles. Is she going to therapy? <laughs> hey, she, she can collect that check. She knows what she has to do. <laughs> yeah, I love Lori Metcalf, but for some reason, like, over these past few months, I've seen her in so many roles where she plays the evil woman, and I was just like, are you okay? Yeah, I was gonna mention. <laughs> How I really liked how the mother was the killer and it alluded to Friday the 13th. Yeah, yes. that's what I was thinking about. It was Mrs. Voorhees and I was like, you know what? I, I appreciate this. <laughs> yeah. Right now. Which I goes like back that. to the first kill with Drew Barrymore. And that was her wrong answer. And there are two yeah. motivations there. One is good old-fashioned revenge and the other is to blame Hollywood for the violence they portray in cinema, creating psycho mm-hmm. killers. Or just being straight up irresponsible for promoting the act of driving people to commit violence, which is a topic that's still kind of relevant today. Yeah, <laughs> especially since I'm sorry. especially since that was one of the biggest criticisms the first one got, which I was yeah. surprised. Like li- reading about the controversy, the fact that the second one basically is an entire film about the controversies that happened because of Scream. Yeah, and it even ended up affecting the third film which we'll discuss when we get to yeah. there when we get to yeah. the, when we just get uh, when we get there yeah but also i haven't mentioned the one thing that kept me invested throughout the entirety of the four movies i hate myself i was way too invested in the gale and dewey romance <laughs> i was way too invested and i was just sitting there like these two had a horrible divorce in real life why am i doing this what is wrong with me? But I was just way too invested. 
And in the second one where where we think that Dewey died, I was hurt. I was deeply hurt that they that they you know they killed Randy and now Dewey. What are what are you doing here? You can't leave Gail alone. And I I I'm way too invested in those two. Like I just yeah. I mean, in the end, she chose him over reporting. I think it has to do with the hate to love thing because obviously in the first movie, enemies to lovers. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, enemies to lovers because they're always fighting, they're always arguing, and then you know they they have they, they have these tender moments, and then in the second one where they're watching the tapes to see if they can find the killer, and then they start making out. There, and it's like we don't have time for this. You need to stop. Those ways to invest in them. Still am, and are they coming back for the fifth one? They're there. Yes, we already oh, have a God. screenshot of you know Weathers and her and an outfit for the film. So they're back. Oh, God. To stab the film itself, the movie within a movie, which is a very meta choice by the director, which is common for him in the 90s. And when you see the first, when you first see the movie Stab, after seeing the first film, you know what it's supposed to look like and it's told differently, which again can be seen as a commentary on how true story adaptations are made, book-to-screen adaptations, horror adaptations that were based on a true story. It's a criticism to that itself. And with Stab, there is a bit of irony there, because I'd like to point out how in Scream 1, Sydney has asked who she thinks would play her in the movie, and she says, with my look, they cast me as Tori Spelling. And in the sequel for Scream 2, Stab has Sydney Prescott played by Tori Spelling. <laughs> I was losing my mind! Scream 3 definitely had some cameos that shocked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, is that Silent Bob and Jay? Yes. That was, yeah. <laughs> there was kind of, I don't know if there was a deal backstage of like, hey, you'll be in my movie and I'll be in yours because Wes Craven was in one of the Jay and Silent Bob films. Yeah. <laughs> and also Jenny McCarthy, who, who played Sarah in the third one. Yeah. By the way, yeah. fun fact with Tori Spelling. She was she originally auditioned to be Sydney Prescott in the actual first film, A Scream, which makes that line even funnier because imagine if Tori Spelling actually booked that role and the line was still there. It get the meta; it just drips off these script pages. It's fantastic. It's kind of like in that episode of Second Cody where they're doing High School Musical and Maddie, who is Ashley Tisdale, says, "Oh, so you're saying that I don't look like Ashley Tisdale because they didn't cast her as Sharpay." And she's It's fantastic. Gave me that kind of same vibe. But can we talk about the most important cameo in the third movie? Take a shot. It's coming. Say it. A five-minute scene with Randy. (laughs) And we're going to break that down when we get to Scream 3. Did you take that shot yet? Are you on the floor already with how many times Anna has said Randy? Also, the most intense scene in Scream 2 to close this off, is when Ghostface crashes the police car and Sydney and her friend Hallie are trying to escape the car by cr- having to crawl over the killer's Mira. knocked out body. Mira! <laughs> Let's talk about how intense that is. That has also has to be the best scenes in the movie because you're playing with the concept of Schrodinger's cat, which you probably heard from Big Bang Theory. Uh, basically here it's a matter of... Philosophy class, gubernatorate. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> So basically here it's a matter of while the killer looks knocked out, we can't see the face behind the mask. So the killer could just be faking and watching them trying to attempt this escape just to mess with them even more psychologically. 
or the killer could genuinely be knocked down and just and it's just heavily breathing. Um, so by default, there is no clear answer, and we just have to assume it's one of those two scenarios. Do you believe the killer is awake or unconscious in that scene? I think he was unconscious. He was unconscious, definitely. Yeah, because he wouldn't have let Sid escape if he was faking it. He would have just killed her right there. He was unconscious. He was knocked out cold. So, in closing, they technically could have ended the series here and just made it a duology. But, you know, they didn't. So now we move on to Scream 3, which came out February 4th of the year 2000. The film's plot reads, a murdering spree begins to happen again. This time it's targeted toward the original Woodsboro survivors and those associated with the movie inside a movie, Stab 3. Sydney must face the demons of her past to stop the killer. This film for me is a guilty pleasure. I acknowledge it's the weakest in the whole series. Yeah. And I had to apologize to Anna and Gabriela after, watch, after they watched it. Because I should have warned them that it is in fact the weakest. This film was basically PG-13 if it wouldn't have the cursing. But we're going to get to that. Production value. I love Sydney's house. I was looking at it as the meme that says, you're paid a certain amount of money to live here, but you don't have social media or something like that. Would you do it? And I'd be like, hell yeah, I just lock my doors. And by this one, we'd and think I... Sydney would know this. Yeah. And the recreation. Of... Oh. Ooh, yeah. Let's appreciate that the dog makes it out alive. Oh, the dog in... I was so stressed. <laughs> I was so sad when the dog's not in the fourth one. Are you kidding me? I know. I hope he was just being taken care of. So, yeah. also, the recreation of Sydney's old Woodsboro home on the set of Stab 3. Mm-hmm. How that worked for the killer chase, that was just fantastic. Which, yeah. also, they added Maureen's voice to terrify Sydney, and that's, that just messes with anyone who's gone through what she's gone through psychologically. Next up, Randy's cameo. Which, for me, was the creators making acknowledging that his death was a mistake. Because he physically wasn't there to explain what is meant to happen to close out this trilogy. Yeah, he had to came back from the grave and just to, like, explain. This is the rules of a trilogy, guys. Please play it out. <laughs> Don't die. <laughs> Deuces. Yeah, he, his rule, the third film rules were the killer is superhuman. Stabbing him won't work. You either have to decapitate him or shoot him in the head. Anyone, including the main character, can die, including Sydney. The past will come back to bite people in the ass. The past is not at rest. Anything can come back to destroy the character. You basically have to deal with an unexpected backstory. And the killer will somehow be immortal. So hence why in, towards the end you see the bulletproof vest. Which is kind of smart mm-hmm. to play with that concept. Using the vest to say, yeah, I'm immortal. You can't kill me because I already thought of this. Yeah. I just want to give a shout out to Patrick Dempsey's hair in this movie. That is all. <laughs> I just want to talk. What's what was what was happening with Sydney Scott's wig? You know. <laughs> I I just want to talk about Gail's bangs. Gail's bangs. Honestly, <laughs> did she get into a three a.m. crisis and just <laughs> took the scissors and did that? Cause, girl, no, the baying. But, but going back to the film, um, I really like how we see, like, Sydney, like, humanized, in a sense, because we always, like, in the first and the second one, we always see her, like, tough, but in this one, you see her with PTSD, with everything that happened, and how the mother started to haunting her, in a sense. 
Yeah, and it's kind of here where you see her, you know, trying to get her life together. Which it's not an easy thing to do considering that you've been literally been chased by a serial killer twice. Now three times. And now three times. Like honestly, Sid needs to change her name, her identity, and flee to a remote town in South America or Australia or Antarctica or any remote corner of the world. We also get to see how Sydney um, developed in a sense that mm-hmm. she now is a woman's crisis helper. Yeah. And she does and adopt a new identity. Women. She does adopt a new identity there. I really liked how she is pursuing that type of job. Because, you know, considering what she went through, she's still, you know, using that that trauma to help other people who might be mm-hmm. in her same shoes. I really found that very interesting. Yeah. And we also have two Gales in this film. The real one and the one that plays the Gale in the movie. They, yeah. I thought they were pretty great, especially in the scene in the archives with the legendary cameo of Carrie Fisher. I was not yeah. ready for that. It makes so much sense for her daughter to be in Scream Queens. Yes. I wish she would have been in Scream 5, though. That would have like completed it. I was not ready for that cameo. I I almost started crying, honestly. So, the third act to me felt rewritten at the last minute, which, to be fair, it actually might have been. We're going to get to that. Mm -hmm. Because it just doesn't feel like the end of the supposed trilogy. I mean, they had, in that movie, they were talking about how there were, like, three different scripts. Yeah, I actually found one of them online. So, I feel that the same thing happened with the ending, that they kind of had three different endings that they were trying to choose from and they just pick one random and be like, this one. Let's do it. Scott Foley, you're the killer. When Randy was explaining the rules of a trilogy, he said anything could happen. Everybody can mm-hmm. be the killer and even the main character can't get killed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. they also played with that throw, so that's why you can see that the last act was a little bit off. And something interesting about this film, like I mentioned earlier, this could have been PG-13, and that's because the stabbing kills here are lacking the blood and the gore the first two films had, Mm -hmm. and they were sometimes happening off-screen. So in the late 90s, along with the conversation of violence in movies began to take over with the amount of violence happening in the real world. Around the time of when this was going to be going into production and release, there was the unfortunate Columbine High School Massacre, which heavily influenced a lot of the rewrites and decisions with what's happened with Scream 3, hence why there's like a couple of scripts out there. And it didn't go that far. And in fact, the, probably the most bloody scene is the opening with Cotton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why they added more comedy. And also the film suffered a lot because uh, I didn't get a chance to mention it earlier, but they had a lot of writers involved. And there was like... original writer at the beginning but then they were replaced and they continue with the original writer's notes so it was just a lot of back and forth yeah this is the one film kevin williamson with the first four is not a part of the writer and you can definitely tell he's missing because that element of what made scream great is missing in some of these Mm -hmm. parts um we're gonna move on a bit from that um i do have some tea about what was one of the original proposed endings Um, This comes from Dead Meets James from an interview he did with WWE superstar Billy Kay. And you can find this interview on her YouTube channel, Jay McKay Does, on the Horror Movie Countdown episode. So the rumor was, and I'm going to break this here, that the original idea for the reveal for Scream 3 
was that they were going to have Matthew Lillard not die at the end of Scream 1, even though the TV fell on his head, since he never exactly got shot in the head. Instead, he was in prison, orchestrating these new killers from that place. But, again, due to the unfortunate Columbine High School Massacre, a lot of things had to be offered, uh, altered with this film. However, according to James, there is a rumor going around that he could come back for the fifth film, which does have some Scream fanatics, as that is some of their conspiracy theories. Nothing's official, mm-hmm. it's just a rumor, so take this with a grain of salt. I personally feel that would be a fantastic reveal because, again, I think Matthew Lillard killed it, pun intended, with that role. <laughs> so the chance for him to show audiences again how great of an actor he is when used correctly would be fantastic. As a famous actor has said before, in the right role, I'm priceless. That's how I feel Matthew Lillard is for Scream, Scooby-Doo. He's very talented. What do the posers think of this conspiracy theory that could have been for the third one but might end up happening for the fifth Who's to say? I would absolutely love it because Matthew Lillard was a screen stealer in the first one. And he is a great actor as well as such a kind human being. And it would be nice to see him, especially because we do have such a great cast right now. If you added him, it would be like the cherry on top. I would love him to like see him reprise his role because um, in screen one, you could definitely see that he loved being on screen and on the set and he was enjoying it well he wasn't meant to be the original killer then not exactly again there are three versions out of this script um you have this version you have the matthew lillard potential reveal and there was i found a script um the other day that showed that scott foley was a killer but he had helped from angelina but even then i feel that didn't work i don't care how innocent that character was Mm -hmm. Because I have a conspiracy theory that plays into it. This is the first screen film with only one killer. That doesn't work for me. It's usually yeah. two. I was like, obviously, I was like, it's Scott Foley for sure. Then I, for a second, I thought it was Patrick Dempsey. And I was like, look at this Grace Anatomy reunion that we have going on right here where they're both evil. I mean, that was my but, conspiracy yeah. theory. I think it is yeah. Patrick Dempsey. It's very convenient for his character. Yeah. He had a huge file on Sydney, which. You can argue that was so creepy. Yep. Like how how can you have that sort of file being very creepy and not suspect that he's planning something? Well, that's the thing. One can argue it's police research, and he's just really good at research. But the other can that argue, just... like me, that it's very creepy. It's very creepy. And I'm sorry, but Roman Bridger could not do all that work alone. I'm sorry, he could not. Like I could believe him killing um, Jenny. Yeah, Jen- Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy, absolutely. Sorry, I believe that. But, for example, it was way too convenient that Kincaid showed up towards the end without his partner, even though they were on duty together. Yeah, and how did he get there? How did he even know that Sydney went there? Mm-hmm. Also, I feel one of the most creative kills here is the fax machine printing the new versions of the script that the killer made. Oh, oh I that love was that scene. Yeah. That was cool. Which is also, when you think about it, pretty funny to make fun of the fact that there were so many versions of your scripts and now you're like printing it out for the characters <laughs> as they go along yeah i felt that was pretty creative yeah. with that we tie up scream three we get into the final film released scream four which came out of eight came out in april 2011 11 years after the events of scream three a catchphrase was new decade new rules here sydney prescott is now the author of a self-help book out of darkness 
returns home to Woodsboro on the last stop of her book tour. There she reconnects with Sheriff Dewey and Gail, now Gail Riley, who have been married for the last 10 years, as well as her cousin Jill and her aunt Kate. Unfortunately, Sydney's return also brings the return of Ghostface, putting Sydney, Gail, and Dewey, along with Jill and her friends, and the whole town of Woodsboro in danger. So, before I get into this, because there's a lot to discuss here, and let the poses start, they brought back Kevin Williamson for this, and it shows. Thank you. You can tell when there's a good script writer attached to your series, and when that yeah. script writer is gone, you can feel the void, like we did in script Scream 3. Now that he's back, it, it feels right again. The fourth one was kind of refreshing mm-hmm. after Absolutely. seeing that disaster. <laughs> the fourth one definitely redeems the third yeah, film. It redeems. Yeah, I was surprised. But also, I forgot one very important detail about the third one. And it's how at the end, when Dewey proposes to Gail with a book. Oh, he hated that book. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that got to me when he gave her the book. I was like, oh, he's doing it. And he, she opens the book and the ring is in there. I was like, God damn it. Why am I so invested? I gotta say, okay, one of the things that I really liked about the first fourth one was the opening scene where yeah. we kept seeing stab different stab movies, and I that like was, how one of yeah. the characters, and I quote, says, "Don't know where they they don't know where to stop. They just keep recycling the story." <laughs> this amount of self awareness that they had in this film. And that's why I kind of like it. Because we all, we as the audience notice it, but it's really funny how they just blandly say it. I think it's also very reminiscent of the Saw franchise, because that is one of the most criticized films when it comes to sequels. And they outright criticized Saw 4 and, and Torture Porn, and I'm here like, thank yeah. you, validation. But also, they had my girl Anna Paquin in that movie for, like, five minutes. <laughs> and she's the one that dies. Hey, the cam- I felt insulted. The cameos in the first opening sequences are great. You had Lucy Hale. It was, Shan- it was so funny. Shanae Grimes. Anna pa- Shania Grimes. Thank you, Shanae Grimes. Anna Paquin. Kristen Bell. Amy Teagarden. You had it all. You had all? I had it all. I was like reminiscing about my teen years when I watched all the shows that those people starred in. You know, Shania Grimes from One Tree Hill, Lucy Hill, Pretty Little Liars, Anna Paquin, True Blood. You know, you had it all. Yeah, and you see... And then Adam Brody. (laughs) Well, he was more of a character than a cameo, but he was there. Listen. When I saw Adam Brody, I had to take a moment because <laughs> it all came. Oh. So yeah, you have to see the sequel merging two generations when it comes to the characters mm-hmm. and the approach to situations. Um, I remember Gabriela texting me when she was seeing the opening of Scream Four, being like, "This girl recognized Channing Tatum by the abs of his Abercrombie days." I love, it. I love when they did a movie within a movie. It's very meta. Again, his Wes Craven's brand, and I. I think what I also really loved about this one is how it united, you know, the old, the original generation of Scream, you know, because you had Neve again, you had Courtney Cox and David Arquette, and you also had this new generation of 
actors who are well known in that time period because this came out in 2011. You know, 2011 was peak for CW. <laughs> to be fair, that they had <laughs> you had those two, but you also had I feel Kirby as a female version of Randy, which listen, I believe in Kirby rights with this film. I adored Hayden Panettiere with this film. She is amazing. She embodied this role. She was the best out of the new characters to the point where I said she can continue with the cast and be in that trio and it'd be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast all around though was fantastic. You had the original trio, the cameos. You had Emma Roberts. You had Nico Tortorella. You had Hayden Panettiere. You had Rory Culkin. Adam Brody. To mention him again for Gabriela. Adam Brody. Anthony Anderson. Alison Brie. Like, this is a cast. SAG Awards, y'all robbed this for Best Ensemble. That's the tea. And also how, the uh, again, going back to the self-awareness, there's this thing with the cops saying, hey, if this were a horror film, we would have get killed first. And look at them. <laughs> Man, they killed Adam Brody first, damn it. <laughs> Like, I knew he was going to die, but when he died, I was like, why is he the first one? Damn it. So, going back to what Anna said regarding the rules to survive a horror remake, that includes, the death scenes have to be way more extreme. Unexpected is the new cliche. Virgins can die now. New versions are always 2.0, so the latest technology is always involved and integral to the plot, meaning the killer can start filming the murders. Have to have an open sequence. Don't fuck with the original. I took out one of the rules out because I feel it did not age well. And that's the only way to survive is apparently to be gay. And I'm here like, I mean, that would be great. But when you see horror films later on, you're like, that's not exactly true. Yeah, that's not. It's the only thing I had a problem with. So I just take that rule out and it's fine. So they film the murders in this snoof screen. They upload them into cyberspace before they're caught so they'll be as infinite as the killer itself. And you have the party, which is a guaranteed third act million cast bloodbath. You have to do a remake to outdo the original. And you have the Stabathon party, a uh, callback to the first film, where you watch all seven Stab films in a row. And the fact that the crowd was quoting Stab in unison, that's my people. If I see a group of people quoting screams word by word, I'm going to join in. And then the... Also, you know, we had the power (laughs) couple that is Gail and Dewey, and they were in trouble, which I saw it coming. Oh, yeah. But you know what? They were married, finally. But, you know, when he saves her, because you think they're in trouble, that they're going to split by the end of the movie, and then he saves her, and he's like, I love you. She's like, I love you, too. And I was like, what's wrong with me? You're in too deep. You're in too deep. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I'm in too deep, but this really, I'm way too invested. And then Mina Suvari, that they hint that, you know, she wants to get with Do It. And it's like, don't you fucking dare again between Judy them. Hicks. I will slap, I will slap those lemon bars out of your fucking hands. The lemon squares. <laughs> <laughs> those lemon squares were getting to me. And then when she shows, when, when Gil shows up to the police station, she's like, your lemon squares suck. And I was like, you tell her. <laughs> so, yeah, Ghostface gets really dark with some of the phone threats he says here. Like, he tells Sydney, I'm going to slit your eyelids in half so you don't blink when I stab you in the face. Or when yeah. he tells the publicist, Rebecca, if you want to be in the hospital, I'd be happy to put you there. 
in the morgue. Like, he is back with his ruthless aggression, which I yeah. it adds even more thrills to the movies. And he updates the kills. Like, before it was yeah. just like, let me just stab, leave a mess, and run away. And now... Yeah, because instead of... Sorry, it's the instead of outright comedy like they were doing in the third one, I think they adjusted it to still have that comedy, but make it, like, more dark humor. Exactly. You got it right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. And he, like, updated. He said, now, you know what? We're just going to throw someone on top of a news van in the middle of a press conference because fuck it. She's already dead. Or let's show mm-hmm. what happens when I say I want your insights on the outside. Like, he went for it when it came to Olivia's death. Mm-hmm. Which I feel, I felt is the closest Scream has gotten to being a borderline Dexter show murder. But again, I think that type of behavior that we see on Ghostface is kind of why it was so easy to find out, to figure out who the killer was. Speaking of the killers, due to the large party being the false ending with the new rules, the real final act happened at Kirby's house. And we get the killers to be Emma Roberts' character, Jill Roberts, Sydney's cousin, and Rory Culkin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the film bros. That type of behavior that Ghostface was exper- was showing of being unhinged, that is exactly how both Rory and Emma were in this movie. Her character was, you know, reserved. Like, you could tell. She was hiding something. She was thinking one step ahead of them because she betrayed her exactly. own partner. Because exactly. when the guy said billions... She killed her mom! Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> that like, was dark. Yeah, but I did like the reveal. Oh, yeah. I did yeah. like that reveal. And, and, we was... did, and we did see that foreshadowing of Emma Roberts being the killer when the mom mm-hmm. said that she's tired of living in Sydney's shadow. I feel that out of all the killers, their motive was the most believable yeah. one. Yeah, it's Definitely. very justified. Because obviously, yeah, because in the first one, it's, you know, Billy, Billy and Matthew Lillard. Stu. And Stu. She's basically, you know, crime of passion. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. It's been done many times. Then the second one is, you know, let's recreate this. And, you know, a mother's revenge. And then the third one is just kind of like, I was supposed to have what you have. And then this one is kind of like, I'm tired of you and I want to bask in the glory of being a survivor. So mm-hmm. I'm going to fuck everything up because I want what you have. And I was just like, that is fucked up. Because mm-hmm. what the media loves is a sole survivor. That guy mm-hmm. did most of the work for her. That's smart. Get him to do all the yeah. work and have mm-hmm. him be taken down. And the montage we get when she's setting up the crime scene it's fucked up, but it's like, it makes yeah. sense. And she thought of everything. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. another thing I'm kind of upset, though. There's a deleted scene that I felt should have been in the movie. Um, it's on, I own these physically. I own these on Blu-ray. So I watch these, like, from time to time. There's a scene which is similar to the first scene, one's fountain scene, where they're all discussing who could be the killer. So in this version, we see all the new teens gathered around to discuss the murders and even discuss what could potentially happen next. It has a great line that reads, you can't kill Sydney, she's victim royalty. But Hayden mm-hmm. Panettiere comes to the defense and says, not true, it doesn't have to be Jill. Sydney Prescott's character has been gone since stab three, 
And plus, she rejected her victimhood. I mean, she practically slapped fate in the face. To which he responds, point taken, and uses Laurie Strode in Halloween Resurrection and Ripley in Alien 3 as precedent. What I said about it is if you had included this in the film, you could have played a little bit more with the intent, the anticipation for the final reveal. It's a short scene, but it's an effective scene. But can we talk about how Emma Robert has slowly become the, the screen queen? Mm-hmm. Um, yes and no. In a sense, because yes, I do think that when it comes to slasher films, she's definitely a great, um, a, a great choice. You know, I loved her in Scream Queens, but in terms of who's the next uh, final girl, I think she could have been. But now you have people like Jessica Roth from Happy Death Day. You have Victoria Pedretti from uh, Hill House. Hon- yeah. You have some new people. But also, Samara Weaving. Samara Weaving, Samara of Weaving. course. Who... But also, Emma Roberts did play another fine final girl in American Horror Story 1984. Exactly. I for... She is kind of like a final girl. She is. Yeah, I forgot about that, too. <laughs> I remember that yeah. just now. Yeah. With that, we conclude yeah. Screen 4. And before we go, we'd like to talk really quick about Screen 5. It's currently in production with the directors of Ready or Not. I'm very excited. I think here we're all very excited. It's supposed to come out. January of 2022. Again, most anticipated film of that year. I can't wait. Uh, The cast so far looks really good. I gotta say, you have um, from In the Heights, Melissa Barrios is a new addition. Jenna Ortega, who if you have not... Melissa Barrera. Thank you. I'm so sorry. I did not mean to butcher the name. (laughs) Jenna Ortega, who if you've not seen in The Babysitter Killer Queen, you'll understand why I feel she's perfect for Scream 5. When I saw that, I said, okay, Perfect casting. She's going to be great. I don't know what her character is, but I'm here for it. They're bringing back some people from what I hear. For example, Randy's sister. Yes, Anna. Randy's sister is rumored to make a cameo. She just wants Randy. I'm sorry, but you know what? One sibling is good. (laughs) I don't know how they're bringing back for the fifth one, Anna. But we can hope. Maybe he was alive the whole time and he's going to be the new killer. I don't know. That was a pretty bloody scene. Going forward, um, I want to see what surprises these new directors bring, see if they confirm any fans' conspiracy theories. I think Paramount Pictures here has a real winner in terms of a film that could be really amazing to see in theaters. Um, again, there was a rumor that Tamara Weaving was going to be in this film as well. And Selena Gomez. And so, yeah, that's right. Selena Gomez was also rumored. But both of them couldn't. Yeah, she's not on the cast list. Uh, yeah, I think both of them couldn't because of previous uh, obligations. <laughs> but I think we're still in good hands. Um, the directors before this one went into production wrote Nev Campbell a letter saying that they are directors because of these films and it's an honor to be a part of this film and they want to honor Wes Cravens in making this film. So you know this film's going to be that much more special. Again, there are so many things in play for Screen 5, like what we mentioned. Possible Matthew Lillard. Is he, did he survive or is he officially dead? We have... Mm-hmm. Kincaid could even come back as a surprise return from Scream 3. We don't know. There are so many options open to what they could bring back. Dewey and Gail are <laughs> back. So. I want to see what happens with them. I don't know if they'll, because of the divorce Me in real too. life, if they'll say they divorced in the movie. Add that layer. Yeah, I want more LGBTQIA representation. That's good. I think that'd be great. And I feel this is a film that has to be seen in theaters. I'm someone who will wait for it to go to theaters. I don't want to see it in my mm-hmm. home. I want the experience of being of going to see it with a group of people. 
that's I can't have that with album kills, but I need to have that with Scream Five. For me, I want them to finally surprise me with the killer. I don't want to guess the killer in like the first half of the movie. I want them to surprise me. And with that, we're gonna wrap up this pretty long. Sorry for the length, but if you're a Scream fan, you're you are in for the ride. Let's Scream Cinematic Universe Breakdown episode. The episode I've been most anticipating to do on the podcast is in the books. Thank you so much for listening. To conclude, if you haven't seen Scream or know someone who hasn't seen Scream, please educate them. It's a crime to have never seen the at least the first one, which I feel deserves to be in the Criterion Collection in all seriousness. Give me my rights, or at least release them on 4K Blu-ray. I'm not asking for much. I'm a simple man. Thank you for listening. You can follow us at Film Posers on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. As always, remember, we're all film posers. Bye. 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 Bye.